Today's scripture reading is found in Acts chapter 18, starting in verse 18. Please stand for the reading of God's word. After this, Paul stayed many days longer and then took leave of the brothers and set sail for Syria and with him Priscilla and Aquila. At Sancrea, he had cut his hair for he was under a vow and they came to Ephesus and he left them there, but he himself went into the synagogue and reasoned with the Jews. When they asked him to stay for a longer period, he declined. But on taking leave of them, he said, I will return to you if God wills. And he set sail from Ephesus. When he had landed at Caesarea, he went up and greeted the church and then went down to Antioch. After spending some time there, he departed and went from one place to the next through the region of Galatia and Phrygia, strengthening all the disciples. Now, a Jew named Apollos, a native of Alexandria, came to Ephesus. He was an eloquent man, competent in the scriptures. He had been instructed in the way of the Lord, and being fervent in spirit, he spoke and taught accurately the things concerning Jesus, though he knew only the baptism of John. He began to speak boldly in the synagogue, but when Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they took him aside and explained to him the way of God more accurately. And when he wished to cross to Achaia, the brothers encouraged him and wrote to the disciples to welcome him. When he arrived, he greatly helped those who through grace had believed, for he powerfully refuted the Jews in public, showing by the scriptures that the Christ was Jesus. This is the word of the Lord. Praise be to God. You can be seated this morning. So, so there are, are different kinds of texts, obviously, in the Bible when it comes to teaching them. Some texts are just hard because of the topic that is uh, kind of laid out within the text. Uh, some texts are just difficult because kind of structurally and, 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 and things like that, like they're just difficult. This is both, okay? Uh, the, the topic that, that is kind of under the surface here is, is, is a difficult one to, to speak on, uh, particularly from, and you'll, you'll get that here in a little bit from, from my vantage point, um, but also just the text in itself is a little bit different because we see, uh, if you were with us last week, Paul is coming out of Corinth, all right? And so you can, if you have your Bible, I'd keep it open there. Um, There to Acts 18. He's coming out of Corinth where he's just spent uh, 18 months, a year and a half, the longest place really Paul landed. And and the Lord told him to stay there. And and you remember from last week, Paul was very uh, apprehensive. He was very fearful of going into Corinth just because of the culture and the things that were taking place in Corinth. And he's like, I got to come and I got to preach the gospel of Jesus. I've got to preach this gospel of of, of holiness and and, and all these things to a people who have no need, who are super affluent, who, 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 um, you know, are going to reject this, this idea that you're saved by grace through faith alone, that it's not effort and all these things. He's like, oh, you know, so he enters, it says in first Corinthians with this fear and trembling into Corinth. And and so he spends a year and a half there. And here in this uh, little section here, did you see as Audrey read that uh, he, he had cut his hair. He, he, so when he's leaving Corinth now after 18 months, he gets a haircut. Okay. And because he had taken a vow, Interesting part, right? Like an interesting add-on that, that Luke would have here. And probably what's taking place here is that Paul, in his time in Corinth, you remember the vision that he had from the Lord last, last week that I, that I laid out, that the Lord said, I'm going to protect you. 
right? No harm is going to come on you. I know you're going into this city, and, and, and I know harm has come to you in city after city after city, uh, but no harm is going to come to you. So probably what he took was what, what in the Old Testament would have been the equivalent of like a Nazarite vow, where he would have abstained from certain foods, and he wouldn't have cut his hair. So, so after a year and a half of no haircut, uh, can you imagine what Paul's hair, and I don't know what length it started at, right? So I don't know if it was Sam's when it started or mine when it started, but however, he's in Corinth, and you remember, Corinth was like this refined, affluent city, right? Probably where everybody had a nice haircut, okay? So Paul is there preaching the gospel, and bro does not have a haircut because he's made a vow before the Lord. And so it's this outward symbol of an inward commitment that he is making to the Lord there in Corinth. Well, uh, it serves as nothing more, if, if minimal, than this, that that it's the end of that time in Corinth. And he's beginning his journey to the end of his second missionary journey. So he cuts his hair as he goes into these uh, other cities. And what's interesting also in this section, in verses 18 through 23, is that Paul goes to Ephesus with his new haircut, and he goes into the synagogue. And, And what did you notice about their reaction to Paul? Their reaction to Paul is they're like, this is great. Like, this is really good news. Like, they, they receive and they have a warm welcome and reception. They're like, Paul, stay with us. Like, st- stay with us in the synagogue. Now, how many know, like, if you've been with us any time in Acts, you know that's not been Paul's reception in most synagogues. Most of them, like, he's ran out. He's stoned. He's, like, like rejected totally. But in Ephesus, they're like, hey, stay with us. You're great. And Paul says, I have to decline. Interesting move, right? Like, why of all places, the place where he's, like, championed and and cheered on and, like, received, Paul goes, I can't stay, right? And what he says to them reveals why he can't stay. He goes, listen, if the Lord wills, I'll come back. I'll come back if God wills it. Once again, highlighting who's in control of Paul's life, right? It's the Spirit. It's the Spirit leading him and guiding him, right? It's not his preference. It's not the reception of people unto him, right? It's that the Spirit is leading him, and he goes, listen, if God wills it, I'll come back. But if the Spirit doesn't, I'm I'm following him wherever he takes me. And so then, from verses 24 to 28, and this is where we'll spend the bulk of our time, um, we get this interesting introduction to a new figure, Apollos. And... uh, the, the question I want to ask here, and I'll keep reiterating, is, is why does Luke, the author of Acts, why does Luke insert this seemingly strange introduction? Why does he show us or tell us who Apollos is in this section? Why here in chapter 18? Why now, right? Apollos is not mentioned again outside of this, right, in the book of Acts at all. No more mention of him. Why does Luke do that, right? And maybe you go, well, I've heard of Apollos. I feel like I know Apollos. Well, you know Apollos also, and we'll go there as well, in Paul's writings, his letters to the Corinthians. Okay, that's where you've heard the name Apollos. But Luke gives us this really fast picture of Paul's ending of his missionary journey in Antioch and all these other places, strengthening the disciples. Then he introduces Apollos because he kicks it back to Ephesus. Back to where Priscilla and Aquila have stayed, right? Paul left, but Priscilla and Aquila stayed, and a man rolls onto the scene named Apollos. And I I need to say this, and Apollos, even though there is a lack of information on him here in the text, he was probably a very big deal. 
He was probably very widely known in this culture. And in and, and some scholars, some, and I know there's debate on this, um, some believe that Apollos, in fact, is the actual author of the book of Hebrews. There's a debate on who wrote our book of Hebrews. Apollos is one of the names that gets floated out there. I'm not going to debate it. I'm not going to talk about what I believe. But that's how Apollos was revered. That's how, how much Paul, Apollos would have been known. And so Luke gives us some interesting facts here in the text about Apollos. So if you could put those, those back up for me. In verses 24 through 28. Because here's, what I, here's how I want you and me to read our scriptures. Like, there's no detail that is just superfluous, right? Like, there's no detail that's just there just, just to be there, okay? Like, all of these things about uh, Apollos are important. And so, so, so right here, now after spending some time in Galatia, Phrygia, strengthening all the disciples, now verse 24, now a Jew named Apollos. So first thing you notice about Apollos is what? He is a Jew, okay? That's important. A native of Alexandria, all right, even more important, where he is from. It's not just going, hey, just so you can identify this in a map. It shows you something about, it tells you something about Apollos. You see, he's from Alexandria, which had been uh, in, in, down in Egypt in that area. It was one of the most largely populated cities in the Roman Empire. And so about 250,000 people, which is a massive city, okay, was Alexandria. And half of that population were Jews, predominantly Jews who had left Jerusalem and settled there. Much bigger than Corinth, what we talked about last week. And so Alexandria was regarded and revered for its educational system and educational opportunities, right? Maybe some of you are familiar with the Library of Alexandria, right? One of the, the wonders of, uh, of the world, right? It was a center, a hub for education and study, okay? Think a little bit less than like, like Athens was, was in its own way, but this was like for education. This was for study. Apollos was born and raised in the city, now comes in to Ephesus to teach in the synagogue, right? The same synagogue that, that, that Paul was just teaching at. Here comes uh, Apollos. And it says something else about his, uh, so not just where he's from, not that he's just a Jew, but it talks about his teaching, right? Look at this. He was an eloquent man. So he was a really gifted orator, right? He, he, he was really good in how he spoke. His rhetoric skill was, was through the roof. And it says also next that he was competent in the scriptures, Okay, now let's take a little time. If I say to you, like, you're competent in something, does that seem like a compliment to you? Okay, like, I, I just, the, the, the Mavs, the NBA draft just happened. In the Mavs, I was reading the, uh, the bio on the guy that they just drafted. He, he was a guard. And it said that he's a competent passer, right? And I'm like, like, that seems kind of harsh, right? Like, he could pass the ball. Like, I'm a competent passer, you know? Like, I can hit somebody with a pass. But here, okay, hear me. Hear me, and this is why I'm bringing this up. This does not mean what you're thinking about competent, okay? This does not mean that Apollos just knew the Old Testament, knew that, that Leviticus fell in the Old Testament. This is not that he's just simply competent. This was that he knew a lot, about the Old Testament, probably so much so that he could recite any given passage possibly from mind and heart in the Old Testament. This competence in the scriptures meant that he could actually go into a synagogue and give a sermon or a talk from the scriptures that was very, very good. So here we have Apollos, who is eloquent and he's competent in scriptures. He is from Alexandria. He is a huge deal, right? And so let me maybe put this in modern terms, all right? Like when Apollos is speaking in the synagogue, somebody would look up there and go, man, that guy can preach, 
right? Like, you know, like you ever said, like that guy, he can bring it. He's wise, he's cultured, he's well studied, he, he's great at rhetoric. And not only is he those things, but, but, but Luke goes on to say that he is also, look at this at the end of verse 25, I guess it would be the middle. He is being fervent in spirit. Lowercase s, not uppercase s. We'll get there in just a second. So that he has this passion and he has this zeal and this deep conviction when he communicates. That's the depth of this kind of guy that Luke is bringing. It inspires people. It moves people, right? Like, that's Apollos. Like, sounds like a kind of a tip of the spear kind of guy, doesn't it? Intellectual, charismatic, um, a great speaker, um, all these things. He's, he, he's, he's smart. Like, this is where you would expect the story to go. And if you listen to what Audrey was saying, you know, this isn't where the story goes. But you'd expect the story to go on from here. And Apollos preached powerfully and thousands came to Christ and all these things. But what happens next in this story? Look at it. And so he's referring to here. He spoke and taught accurately the things concerning Jesus. Great, right? Though he knew only the baptism of John. Time out. Wait a minute. Apollos is all of these things. He's from Alexandria. He taught the scriptures. He was fervent in spirit. However, there was something missing in him. And what was missing in him is that he only had half the story, meaning he knew the baptism of John. So here's what I want you to think about. The baptism of John should kick you back to Acts chapter 1, where Jesus himself says this in Acts chapter 1. For John baptized you with water, right? Ding, 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 one we're familiar with. But, Jesus says, the Holy Spirit will baptize you not many days from now. Okay? Acts chapter 1 versus Acts chapter 2. What happens in Acts chapter 2? The day of Pentecost. The Holy Spirit comes and the church is formed. What is they saying here in Acts 18? Apollos doesn't know about how the Spirit's baptism is happening and working throughout the known world. And then who tells him about this? This is what I love in Acts 18. Priscilla and Aquila pull him aside and tell him the thing that he is missing. It's a beautiful picture. So back to my original question. Why does Luke put this intro in Acts at this point without any other mention of Apollos anywhere else in Acts if he's such a big deal? Well, who have the sermons been about in in Acts, relatively speaking, like just on the surface, for probably the last nine to ten weeks? Think about it. Just look, flip over your pages, look at the headings, right? Paul, Paul, Paul. Paul, Paul, right? You see, we need a reminder that this is not a story about Paul. We need the reminder that this story, the book of Acts, is about what Jesus Christ came to do and now through the power of the Holy Spirit is continuing to do in and through the church. Paul, yes. Apollos, yes. But just as much Priscilla and Aquila. That God was and is building his church and spreading it to the ends of the earth. Hear me. The advancement of the gospel and movement of the church was not dependent only on Paul. You see this even as he leaves cities like Ephesus. That God raises up new leaders like Apollos that leaves Priscilla and Aquila there. He raises up other proclaimers of the gospel to show and share the gospel. You see, we, we typically want to resonate or, or, or tend to lean into stories where there's one central hero. Do we not? Like earthly hero or figure to give credit to. And what Luke is doing is that he is reminding us that the church is bigger than any single person or elite group of people. 
that the work of the church is greater than a single minister and the mission of the church is dependent on more than one charismatic, capable person at the top. However, our tendency is to still find that. Is to find that one leader, that one group, that elite group of people that we can hitch our wagon to. That's just our tendency, mine and yours. And it's no different back then. You see, where else you know the word, uh, the, the name Apollos from is 1 Corinthians 1. You see, I think Luke has a keen understanding of what happened in the Corinthian church in its divisions over people. Right? So let's look at this. 1 Corinthians 1, verse 10 through 12. It says, I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our, our, Lord, our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree... And that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment. For it has been reported to me by Chloe's people that there is a quarreling among you, brothers, right? A division, a divisiveness. Over what, Paul? What I mean is this, that each of you say, I follow Paul, I follow Apollos, or I follow Cephas, which was Peter, or I follow Christ. What are the divisions over? The divisions are over who's your leader, Who's your guy? Who's your tribe? Well, I'm with the tribe of, of Paul. I'm with, I'm with the tribe of Cephas, right? The, the original guy, Peter, right? The rock, that's who I'm with, right? Or I'm with Apollo's tribe. He's the smart one, right? He's the rhetorical genius, right? He, he's the guy from Alexandria. You want to know what they thought about Paul? Uh, Lejo, give me a 2 Corinthians 10.10. 10. I think we have that one in here. You want to know what they thought about Paul in comparison to Apollos? Look at this. For they say, right? The Corinthians, I love this. His letters are weighty and strong, that's Paul, but his bodily presence is weak and his speech of no account. That's Paul, right? Writing about himself of what they say about him, okay? He's really weighty in his, his writing. He's really smart, but in bodily presence and speech, he's not really there, right? It's like nobody cares how smart you are, right? They just care how charismatic you are. And Apollos, on the other hand, he's got it all. You see, there was no, and I want you to hear me, there was no friction or contention between Paul and Apollos, by the way. It was just found in the people who followed them. The divisions, the factions, the the fractures and and splinters. And then, of course, you have the one, going back to that text in 1 Corinthians 1, those who say, I follow Christ. Which seems like the super spiritual thing to answer, right? Like there's always that person who rises above the division to create another division of being more spiritual than everybody else. But what Paul is highlighting is our natural tendency. He's highlighting our natural heart here, that people's attention, when it begins to drift away from what God is doing, typically tethers or finds itself, tethering itself to people, people who God is working through. Does that make sense? You miss out on what God is doing, and you begin to focus on the people that God is working through and miss God himself. And the trouble with that is that God becomes a distant power and the leaders become an idealized access to that power. So if I can get around Apollos, I'll know the power of God through that. So if I can just say I'm following Paul, then surely, inevitably, I'm going to find the power of God or, or, or Cephas. You see, we function like this today. And I'm convinced it has something to do with our consumerism and our ability to choose in nearly every other area of our life. You see, people represent consumable ideas, and we choose products that we like best. Ministries or churches are compressed down into consumable ideas or a brand on a shelf that I choose 
because it meets my need and my desire or my place in life at this moment. And hear me, that is not an indictment just on us as people. Let me also indict the church at large, including the one in which you sit in, okay? That churches, by and large, have decided not to challenge the idea of consumerism that so grips our hearts, but instead to embrace it, foster it, leverage it, ensure they put church names on it like growth strategies in reaching the lost or our least favorite discipleship. And it is none of those things, not at all. In fact, it's simply accommodating people in their consumerism and not really equipping them to love Jesus more fervently. You see, the work Luke does in Acts 18 and the story that unfolds in Paul's letters that we just read works to undermine this mentality of consumerism that plagues us all. And one of the ways in which he does it, if you look in your text there in Acts 18, is through who? Priscilla and Aquila. This everyday, ordinary, tent-making, leather-working couple who became the sustaining force for Paul, as you'll read in the beginning of this, and then the encourager and teacher for Apollos, the great Apollos, on things that he had yet to learn. And you want to know Apollos' primary teacher in that relationship? You can look at it, if you were with us last week, you noticed that it was Aquila and Priscilla, and then this week it flipped. Most scholars believe that Apollos' primary teacher there was not Aquila, but was Priscilla. This woman showing and leading him, displaying the gospel and the Spirit's power coming at Pentecost so that he could know the baptism of the Holy Spirit. It's like Luke drops this beautiful nugget here in Acts 18 to go, Okay, church, you're so obsessed with Apollos or with Paul. How about an immigrant leather-working woman? who has helped Apollos, the great studier, the great thinker, the eloquent man with so much force and power to better understand his own theology. This humble couple without fame, without influence, pulls it all back to center. You see, what I think Luke is communicating through Acts 18 is this, that there's no room in this story for celebrities. No one singular person stands on the stage of Acts alone. In fact, no one stands on the stage of Acts except for Jesus Christ alone. And so I think there are three things I want us to take away this morning from Acts 18. A very difficult text, a hard text to understand, but I think one that we can resonate with. The first is this. A ministry or a church is always a community. A ministry... A church is always a community. The only face that represents a church, this church and any other local church you've been a part of, is not the pastors, it's not the elders, it's not a singular leader. It is the face of Jesus Christ. This is his bride. This is his church and he represents it. The church does not have a single most important person or small group of people on which everything depends. Listen to me. There is more weight and responsibility laid on some for sure. The Bible lays that out very clearly. However, those responsibilities and weight should never communicate an elevated importance and dependence on Apollos, on Paul, on Priscilla Aquila, on Aaron, on Sam, on Kyle, the elders, or anyone else here. So when someone says to you, no one is irreplaceable, is that a threat? Maybe in a work setting, right? You know, like if your boss goes, listen, you're not irreplaceable. You know, like you're like, what, did, what happened, you know? 
Like, that's not a positive thing. But in the church, hear me, it's a beautiful thing. That we are replaceable. That this is Jesus' church. That this is his kingdom that he's building. That this is his church. And the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Whether Sam's singing, whether Kyle's preaching, whether you're sitting out there. Listen, his kingdom is going forth. This church, by his grace, will go forth. So hear me, the church and ministry is a community of people committed to the work of Jesus Christ alone. The church is incredibly weak and vulnerable when it places its hope for existence on one person or a couple people. But let me tell you when the church is beautiful. Let me tell you when the church is powerful. When each member is contributing, playing a part, when each member is known and valued and heard across the board, I think that's what Acts 18 is getting at. A church or a ministry is always a community. Second thing is this. And we've said this, this phrase here at the park for some time, but I hope it sinks in. That there is no priority on profession in the kingdom of God. You know that, right? Like what I do as a full-time church worker is no different than what you do in terms of value in the kingdom of God as someone who's, who's a stay-at-home parent or a teacher or a student or an artist. or a play. Like there's no priority on profession in the kingdom of God. Being eloquent or charismatic, smart, influential does not mean that you know more than those sitting around you. Let me just help you with that one, okay? Priscilla and Aquila with the great Apollos. We oftentimes equate worldly or ministry success with truth. That is not what it means. What impresses people must be right. And surely if it works, it must be correct. Think about this scene in Acts 18. Apollos wows the synagogue. Wows it. Overwhelms them with his rhetorical ability and skill. His scriptures, the content, the memory. But he's missing something. He's missing the power of the Holy Spirit that has come in Acts 2. And so here, Priscilla and Aquila, what does it say? It says that they got on Facebook and blasted him. They posted a Yelp and a Google review on how poor it was and see if you can go spot what's missing. No, no, what does it say? Look, look at your text. It doesn't say those things, by the way. Some of you are like, is that the message? No, it's nothing. It's not. Read your Bible. It says that they pulled him aside. It's this very, like, loving. Do you get that? It's like this loving, gracious, like, hey, like, you're spot on. You're telling Jesus, right, his life, his death, his resurrection, but you're missing something. You're missing the baptism of the Holy Spirit. You're missing the power of the Holy Spirit that, that's come, Apollos. It's come. So there's this like tender, loving care from the community. The great Apollos was missing something. And maybe what is even more or equally as impressive, Apollos listened. Hmm. Apollos heard. Apollos sat with him. And you go, you want to pull me aside? You know where I'm from? You know how many degrees I have? You see the letters before and after my name? Right? He listened. Not only was Apollos a bold speaker, but I think Apollos was a bold listener. Humble. Please recognize, hear me, a seminary degree, a platform, a stage, an eloquence, 
and intellect does not make one's life more devout in God's eyes than anyone else who is part of a community of faith. That it's the same amazing grace that has saved them, Apollos, as it is for any other child, right, to use the dichotomy. You see, we as leaders and elders and people who are leading this church, we need you if, as much, if not more, then you need us. This is a community with collective wisdom, collective gifts to grow and to follow the way of Jesus together. And it operates beautifully and powerfully when we're doing that in lockstep with the Spirit. Third, last thing. The church is not a product to consume, but a family to walk with. I don't think that's on the note, but I just added that. It's not a product to consume, but a a family to walk with. Look at what Paul says. Let's go back to his letters with Apollos. First Corinthians, and this is going to be in, in, in same chapter one. Uh, go, go, first Corinthians chapter one, verses uh, 13, I believe. Hey, Joe. There we go. Is Christ divided? Church, is Christ divided? No, the answer to that is no. Was Paul crucified for you? Or were you baptized in the name of Paul? The answer is no. I thank God that I baptized none of you except Crispus and Gaius, right? Which, first off, is that like, that's like the least pastoral thing you could possibly ever say. Like, I'm so glad I didn't baptize you, except these two, okay? Like, I didn't baptize these two. Why? Why would Paul say that? For this reason. So that no one may say that you were baptized in my name. Verse 17, for Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel and and not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. So here's what Paul is saying there. He's going, listen, this isn't something that you just consume, that you go, listen, this was Paul. I was baptized by Paul. He's my guy. He's all this thing. No, you were baptized in Christ. That's the, it's not who baptized you. It's what you were baptized into, right? And Paul goes, I thank God that none of you can claim that I even baptized you to not lose the focus on what this is really about. It's really about Jesus. It's not about consuming a good or a product or a song or a talk or a sermon. This is about Jesus. And how many know, like, we need a shock to our system, our consumption, our consumerism. We have to be reminded, like the early church, that this is not a product. This is not about a singular leader or a group of leaders. This is about Jesus. We are here because Jesus has brought us together. The Spirit has compelled us to one another, sharing our gifts, our resources, and our lives so that we might know Jesus more and more. And listen to me, it's going to be messy. We're going to fail one another. We're going to have those moments where we need to be like called out by Priscilla and Aquila and shared with, right? We're going to have those moments where you do it and where we do it to you, and it's going to be difficult, Listen, but when we don't see the ministry as a community, when the church becomes a consumable good or service divided by brand or leader or style, Paul has very strong words about what happens. Did you see it at the end here? Listen, when this occurs, that's why he's warning the Corinthians in chapter one, he didn't make it 10 verses. He says, you empty the cross of Christ of its what? Power. You just empty the cross when you begin to divide out, when you begin to faction out, when you begin to pick tribes and places and spaces, right? The cross of Christ is emptied of its power when you begin to see the church as a product to be consumed and not a family to be walked with. Grace to be displayed. Forgiveness to be shared. And here's how we'll we'll finish. 1 Corinthians 3, as Paul continues this line of thought. 
that I think Luke very well knows in Acts 18. He says, let no one deceive you himself. If anyone among you thinks that he is wise in this age, let him become a fool that he may become wise. For the wisdom of this world is folly with God. For it is written, he catches the wise in their craftiness. And again, the Lord knows the thoughts of the wise, that they are futile. So let no one boast in men. Highlight that. Underline that. Let no one boast in men. For all things are yours. Now this verse gets hijacked by prosperity gospel. This is, this is talking about Christ. This is talking about what you have in Jesus Christ. Whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world or life or death or present or the future, all are yours and you are Christ and Christ is God's. So what Paul is beating over their heads and what we have to beat into our heads and into our hearts is this, that everything you have, everything you need, you have because of Christ. Not because of this community, not because of me as a preacher, or us as elders, or Sam as a, as a worship leader, anything like that. It's not because of that. It's because of Christ. And in Christ, guess what? You have everything. All is yours. All is yours. You don't need a brand. You don't need uh, some, some charismatic or winsome leader. All you need is Christ. And anything that distracts you from Christ empties the cross of its power. And we don't ever want to rob the cross of its power by becoming something for you that only Jesus can and should provide. It's exactly what I said last week. Where Paul goes, I'm not going to give you what you think you need, right? I'm going to give you what you absolutely need. I'm not going to give you what your tickling ears want. I'm going to get you what your heart needs. And let us appear foolish in this world. If this means that the gospel and God's glory might be more fully known among us. That we might undermine the crafts and the tricks of this world with all of its foolishness. To present to you the cross of Christ. See, if you have your Bible open. I think it's very fitting how Apollos' ministry is summed up here. Right? And he's in Corinth when he's summing this up. Verse 28, the last verse. For he powerfully refuted the Jews in public, showing by the scriptures that the Christ was Jesus. What summed up Apollos' ministry? That he used the scriptures to show each and every person, particularly the Jews in this context, that Jesus was the Messiah. Jesus is the one the Old Testament pointed to. Jesus is the Christ. The summary of this great Apollos work in Corinth summed up in that one phrase. You see, that's all I want from my life. That's all we as elders and leaders of this church want from this church. And that's all we want for you. That the cross would not be emptied, but that we would be filled with the power that comes from his grace in his mercy, by his Holy Spirit. That's the communion we want. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your word. Your word that is true and timely, whether written to the first century Jew or Gentile, the person knowing who Apollos is personally or us here, so far removed, it is still powerful 
it is still transformative. It is still rich. Your spirit is still drawing and removing things out of us. And Lord, you know the tendency of our hearts. You know the tendency of my heart is to divide, is to faction off, is to tribe up. Lord God, I pray for us as a church that we would see things as your spirit calls us to see them. That we are a collective of people called together, drawn together by your spirit, redeemed by your son. God, that we might be a people who tell a better story with our lips and with our lives. That we'd stop looking for status and intellect and celebrity, someone to see your power in and miss your actual power. Oh God, may we never be satisfied with a secondhand experience of you. May we never be satisfied with hearing of you through someone else's relationship. But let us endeavor as a community to live and breathe and have our being in your presence through your spirit so that we might know and experience firsthand the power of the cross, the power of your death and resurrection. Lord, that's what's compelling. Not a sermon, not a song, not a building, not a structure, not a group of happy people. Your spirit is what's compelling, the power of your spirit. So Lord, I pray that that would be on display in and through the Parks Church. Lord, that we would pull our resources and our talents, our giftings that you've wired us in all together and share them, share them one to another and share them with this great community. Now, Father, I pray even this week of Thanksgiving that we would go forth from here led and empowered by your Holy Spirit clinging to the cross of Christ. Lord, I thank you for this church. I thank you for the pursuit that you have her on. I thank you for the humility to listen within this body, the boldness to speak. So Lord, I pray that you would keep us by your grace for yourself. Jesus, all these things we ask by your beautiful, powerful name. Amen and amen.